Leaning Toward Wisdom, the podcast. Coasting on Memories. girl I became friends with on a school trip in high school fell asleep on my shoulders on the ride back. I'm still coasting on that memory. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio. My name is Randy Cantrell. I'm your host here. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. That's not my quote. Came across some article some time ago. I can't even tell you. I don't even remember the point of the article, but that one just kind of leapt out at me. Is that the right? tense for the word leaped <laughs> past tense yeah people were talking about memories and things and have no idea how old this guy is but the quote is a girl and I became friends on a school trip in high school she fell asleep on my shoulders on the ride back I'm still coasting on that memory and yeah, man, I got fixated. I got fixated, as you know I am wont to do. Coasting on that memory. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about coasting on memories. Glad you clicked play. I'm on the downhill side of recovering from COVID, my first experience with it. So this is a special episode, I think. Well, we'll see. I think, I, I think I'm going to go ahead and release it. Today is July the 20th, 2022. Uh, the feeling, if you have not experienced COVID, if you have experienced it, then maybe this all makes sense to you, but it's, um, it's odd. It's just very odd. Now this is who knows how many strains of this thing we're into. And this one is evidently particularly contagious and, uh, I'm still staying in, I'm still isolating. Um, I, you know, I don't feel particularly bad, but I don't feel particularly good either. So there's that crimson and clover and crystal blue persuasion were on the same album. I was 11 years old. Uh, it was one of my first and biggest music memories of my music. And maybe it was the first record that I wore out literally Tommy James and the Shondells. Crimson and Clover and Crystal Blue Persuasion. People likely today think of Crystal Blue Persuasion being on the soundtrack of Breaking Bad. But I was 11. 
uh, when it came out and when I first heard it. And like I said, just completely wore the album out. Now, when I was 11, listening to Top 40 Radio in the car, that was just a constant. It was just a given in the car. And it was AM radio. FM radio was not a big deal when I was 11. It was all AM radio, and it was either, I guess, I guess there was news talk. I, I, that's just not what our car was tuned to. When we got in the car, it was on top 40 radio. So it was, by and large, popular music, at least popular music of the day. At home, the biggest memory and influence was probably my dad's 1962 Ray Charles record, Modern Sounds of Country and Western Music. It's reminiscent of that line out of the Blues Brothers. They go into this, you know, it's some kind of a bar. They're crashing in to play. They're pretending to be another band, and they ask the purveyor of the establishment, the kind of, what kind of music y'all got? We have both kinds, country and Western. <laughs> this record cover, I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Just go to leaningtowardwisdom.com. Just find the episode on coasting on memories. Uh, it's a red record cover. It was on RCA, the old RCA label, the dog with the big phonograph aimed at his head a red record cover a young ray charles looking up singing side one had bye bye love you don't know me half as much i love you so much it hurts just a little loving will go a long way and born to lose Side two had worried mind. It makes no difference now. You win again. Careless love. And I can't stop loving you. And hey, good looking. And it was track five and six on side two that I mostly remember. And of course, the very first song on side one, Bye Bye Love. But I can't stop loving you. And hey, good looking. Uh, these were these were really early music experiences and they they all consisted of great rhythm great harmonies my sister loved the letterman and later on the carpenters for me ray charles was just hard to beat really really hard to beat and i'm talking about for a little kid not yet a teenager so these are the days that i'm beginning to fall in love with music now, the albums, when I was 11, were played on a piece of furniture. And to give you some context, it was, it was the year that I turned 11. Well, first and foremost, I obeyed the gospel. I was baptized in the summer that year. And it was that same year, if I'm not mistaken, that we landed on the moon. These are big, these are big, big events, but I'm falling in love with music and the albums are played on pieces of furniture. Uh, our homes, any home that had music 
had a stereo console. I'll put a picture of this because if you're if you're younger than f- probably 55, you got no recall of this at all. It was just this big piece of furniture and everything was built in. Had a radio built in, had a turntable built in. No, there was no cassette player. There was no eight. There was no tape of any kind. It was all records. It was records and radio. Now, junior high brought on new music related interests because it's at this point now that I'm really interested in hi-fi stereo gear, because now we are getting into this, this, there's this whole other subculture that I knew nothing about. And that was fueling, well, I I don't, you know, come on, it's chicken and egg. Was my interest in music fueling the hi-fi stereo interest? Yes. Was the hi-fi stereo interest fueling the music stuff and vice versa? Yes. Tons of music, tons of memories have provided good coasting surface, if you please, for my life. I don't know about you, but there's a soundtrack to life for me. I mean, there's, there's, there's music at these periods of time. There's, you know, there's the, there's the coming of age and the fascination with what was called progressive or alt country. There's these days of Brewer and Shipley and Poco and Buffalo Springfield and and I could, I could do that. I could do that for a lot of different phases of my life. I won't bore you with that. I was watching a documentary about Ben Fong Torres, Ben Fong Torres, uh, a famous music editor for Rolling Stone magazine. And in watching that, I don't remember it was on Netflix or something, but it brought back a lot of memories of the 1970s and the music that once dominated my life. But music is just part of the memories that I, I coast on. Words, words matter. Words have always mattered. Increasingly, they matter. And I'm not just talking about song lyrics. I was a kid. I was a, a junior high and high school kid who devoured Ben Fong Torres, his writing, and Hunter S. Thompson and Cameron Crowe because their writing was, it was not like anything familiar to me. Ben wrote about music. He wrote about musicians and Hunter Thompson. Well, Hunter wrote about a whole lot of stuff, popular culture and politics. And I didn't care. I didn't care that much really. Well, I certainly didn't care about politics, but I did enjoy how Hunter, how Hunter wrote and still do. And he was, uh, in many ways, um, you know, he was, he was, he was not like anybody that I would dare let in my life, except in reading his words, Cameron Crow, Cameron Crow was like Ben, uh, he was writing about musicians. And the thing about Cameron Crow is he was a contemporary, you know, Ben Fong Torres was, he was older. Hunter S Thompson was older. I mean, the, these guys were I'm still in school and these guys are, I mean, they're out in the real world and they're writing this stuff and I'm fascinated by their wordsmithing, but Cameron Crowe, Cameron Crowe's a kid. He's just a kid like me. And I'm like, how's this kid pulling this off? You know, well, 
he's in California. I'm not in California and I don't, I never, at this point, I've never been to California, but he's writing about musicians and I'm reading, I'm reading these three guys. I'm reading their stuff regularly and it's all just adding new coasting surface for my memories because I'm reading, I'm reading their words and I'm reading words that matter because they're words of music and technology and anyway, and it's a convergence, I think of all these three things that are happening for me in the 1970s, music, technology, mostly, well, not mostly entirely based on music because it's based on the gear, the equipment that would reproduce the music, play the records and words. Music, technology, words. The song remains the same, by the way. Memories, turns out, are going to reflect my future and my present. Probably for you, too. Memories don't determine the present. They don't determine the future, but they absolutely influence it. Our memories are part of us. It's what has happened to us. It helps to define us. It does help to create us. The guy coasting on the memory of the girl who fell asleep on his shoulder indicates how something so small can linger for so long and it can even fuel us along the way. It's not about coasting in the sense that we're not doing anything. It's not about coasting in that way. It's not about coasting in the sense that, okay, putting forth no effort into anything. We're just coasting. I don't know what memories you may leverage for the kind of coasting that we're talking about. But when I read this statement, it did make me think of what memories have fueled me, what memories may still be fueling me. I began the conversation with memories about music because music has accompanied every era of my life so far. And I don't suspect it's going to stop until my life stops, but I'm not coasting on it. I'm, I'm not coasting on any of it. It's, it's not a driving force for me so much as it is a soundtrack. It, it's, it's a key, but frankly, probably a, a rather minor player in the grand scheme of things. And so I started thinking of the memory that this guy shared, the memory of a girl falling asleep on his shoulder and how He's been coasting on this memory for a long, long time. And I'm not at a loss for pivotal memories. I'm not sure that I've got any single memory that fuels me like the one that he established or experienced. One of my first thoughts was about family and faith and not separately, because for me, they're connected. I've long thought that I hit the lottery. I hit the lottery when it came to being born into a Christian home where I was taught the Bible and where I learned about God and the church and myself and from grandparents to parents to old men and old women. I was fortunate enough to have great teachers. I didn't have to go searching for God. I didn't have to go searching for the truth. It was handed to me on a platter. I only had to read and listen and learn and figure out on my own whether or not I would embrace this and believe this. And it wasn't about indoctrination as much as it was exposure, exposure to the Bible, to read it for myself, question, whatever 
drove my curiosity, make up my own mind, whether I would believe the evidence presented or not. I decided to follow the evidence. I decided to believe, and then I decided to obey. And so here I am today after years of study and more reading, much, much more reading and many, many, many more questions and much more listening. And my conclusions have only deepened. Now I can't point to some single moment. I can't point to some single memory necessary that provides the kind of coasting that we're talking about, because there are countless cumulative memories that, that provide that kind of a surface for me. Memories of training, memories of teaching, memories of instruction, memories of sermons, memories of conversations, memories of observations of this and that. So for me, that's where it begins. It begins with family and faith. And as I said, they're completely connected. I always had a girlfriend. I never recall being a boy who went ew about girls. I, I never felt that way, but I always liked girls as a little boy. There was nothing sexual in the attraction. I was attracted to some girls for their maturity and their intelligence. I always migrated to the smart and attractive girls. I had a girlfriend in kindergarten. I, I don't remember ever not having a girlfriend. I'm just being honest here. But I was always attracted to the lower drama girls, the one who were more mature. And there was a third component that was really important. And that is fun. I, 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 the girls I liked most had a sense of humor. They laughed and I enjoyed making them laugh. I used to be pretty good at it. <laughs> I remember spending time with girls. And not as boyfriend, girlfriend, but just as close friends and sharing and laughing, talking. I don't remember being uncomfortable around girls. Mostly I found them more interesting and I was attracted to the smartness of them. Now, later I would figure out because my communication style is more aligned might be one of the reasons that there was this greater comfort level. I'm introverted, but I'm verbal. And the older I got, the more crude guys became. And most of the guys, they just weren't that interesting to me. And only a few, only a very few were funny. And the ones that were funny, I found them to be very funny. For me, the smart guys weren't nearly as interesting as the smart girls. I know this is going to sound incredibly sexist, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's just the truth from my experience. The really smart guys, like in junior high and high school, were not nearly as interesting as the really smart girls. The smart guys, um, well, the, they just were not at all guys that I really wanted to spend much time with because quite frankly, mostly they were awkward. Mostly, mostly they were nerdy. I just, I was not that guy. My memories are less about girls though, and more about connection and conversations. 
and girls just happen to be much better at it in my experience. And so that was mostly my circle, my circle of friends going back as far as I can remember consisted of more girls and fewer guys. There was always a guy or two, but there were always four or five girls. I I don't know if, I don't know how uncommon that is, but that's just always how it went with me. I think girls happen to be better at connection, better at communication. At least I found it. So, especially at a younger age and girls, well, the girls that I was most attracted to spend time with, they weren't as cruel as guys, not to me anyway. And I did learn about the cruel girls, mean girls. Uh, these just weren't the kind of girls I wanted to spend any time with. And the girls that I spent time with were not mean girls and girls didn't have rage. <laughs> I learned very early boys have rage. I'm not saying girls don't have it. I just, the girls that I hung around with, they, they did not have rage. I guess. I don't know. I don't know about, I, I think a lot about it, finding effective ways to deal with rage, to minimize rage, keep it in check, hopefully extinguish it. If we can, I'm not saying I got the answers to that. I just know this, that when it comes to boys, I, I tell anybody with boys, you know, yes, we collective, we community village, whatever you want to call us, we really have got to serve the boys and help them deal effectively with rage. The word that continues to leap to the forefront of my memories in all of this, in the conversations and the connections, girls or boys is the word interesting. The girls I spent the most time with were interesting and interesting has always driven me. My curiosity has never left me, which is, I suppose, why I don't find it hard to be interested in others. For as long as I can remember, I have felt that other people were more interesting because, well, I know my life and my life doesn't seem so interesting. I wanted to know more about their life. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my life I have uttered the statement, I already know what I know, but I want to know what you know. And that pretty much epitomizes my curiosity. Now, here's the thing about my memories of being interested. If I'm not, I can't fake it. Well, okay, I could, but I just don't want to. I don't want to fake being interested. I can hide it for a little bit, but I really, really, really hate forcing interest when I don't have it. Mostly I just try to survive it. And there's a lot, and trust me when I tell you true confession. I mean, there's a lot of things I'm just not that interested in. I just don't care, <laughs> but memories of being interested They've always existed. And I would say that memories of being interested have existed to such a degree that it has driven me in ways that are really, really difficult to explain. And it didn't matter if it was at school, at work, at play. I don't embrace apathy. I battle apathy as hard as anything I have ever faced because I absolutely positively hate 
how apathy feels. And so rather than accept apathy, I lean really hard into alternatives. And for me, that is mostly in finding ways to fuel my interest so that I can counterbalance or offset indifference or at worst apathy. And for me, okay, six, one half dozen, another indifference, apathy, who cares? Same thing. Now, for many years, I was not able to fully understand this. And so I leaned into, I don't know, this has been 30 years ago. I leaned into learning as much as I could about answers, learning to find why, why are we wired the way we're wired? And it started with communication. It started with why do some people, why do some people communicate overly? So my hands in the air and other people just not so much. Why is it that some people will readily kind of tell you how they're feeling, what they're thinking and other people, you could interrogate them for days and they wouldn't tell you. Well, I began to look at personality types. I began to look at communication styles. I'm not looking for the, the spiritual answer. I've, I've, I feel like I've got that. I've got that at a young age. I know, I know where God is in all of this. I know where I am in all of this. I know where humanity is in all of this. I believe the creation story. I believe that we are here for this grander purpose to obey God. I believe in the life after this life. None of that is in play here for me. What's in play is why do I roll the way I roll? And why does this person over here roll the way they roll? And this other person roll the way they roll. And I got these people around me and I'm gravitating to these people who kind of, kind of sort, if they don't roll the way I roll, at least they roll in a way that's very complimentary and in a way that's not tough. Have, have you had friendships that were really, really hard? You just had to work like a demon to keep them. Yeah, I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. So I started looking at personality types and communication styles, and I don't have this narrow view, by the way, of personality types. Are there really only 16? Are there 24? Are there less? Are there more? I don't know. That just doesn't seem likely to me, given all the billions of people on the planet. But after years of reading, I do think, I absolutely am convinced that there are tendencies and common traits. Now, I don't care. Pick the profile that you like. I kind of sort of like them all as a matter of trying to gain insights. I don't put complete stock in any of them. I just kind of take them all as a mishmash, a total holistic view of can they share, you know, are they, are they shining some kind of a light on, on an aspect here? that I, that I make and gain some insight into how I roll and why I may roll the way I roll and why other people may roll the way they roll. And it mostly started out self-discovery and it morphed from that to trying to figure out how to communicate more effectively to other people with other people. Cause it was still about connection and it was 
clearly about communication. Well, Myers-Briggs is one of those that's out there. And Myers-Briggs identifies me as an INFJ-A. I stands for introversion. N stands for intuition. F stands for feeling. J stands for judgment. And that dash A stands for assertive. Now, here's what Myers-Briggs has to say about it. Laid back. Assertive INFJs, that is INFJ-As, that's me, are those INFJs that have a more relaxed attitude toward daily occurrences. Both personalities have a dominant introverted function that influences their need to go through situations independently, but assertive INFJs seem less concerned about adverse outcomes. Okay. What does all that mean? Well, Myers-Briggs talks about how this personality type can close a door, close a chapter in something, particularly in a relationship. And it aptly describes how I handle toxic people, how I handle apathy, and maybe how I handle other things. I just don't dance with apathy. I shut it down. And I shut it down by aiming at something that can offset it. And it has to be something that is congruent with the approaching apathy, the approaching indifference for year. For example, after years and years in small business, and I define small business as how close leadership or ownership is with the work. I don't define it by size. I just kind of got a little bit tired of it. And I had an opportunity to shift into more coaching than consulting. And as I felt my indifference for consulting, Wayne, guess what I did? Well, I dug into coaching. I dug into coaching to make a shift. I never let the apathy set in. I just deprived my own indifference to fuel this need to grow in a different area. And as a result today, I'm extraordinarily experienced in business. And when the right opportunity fits, I could get excited about it, but I am mostly now given to my higher interest in coaching, which I happily define as just helping other people figure it out. Just trying to help other people figure it out. I'm not trying to tell people what to do. It's their life. I got my own life. I got my own problems. I want to help you sort yours out. But that's one example of how I lean into or against apathy and indifference. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I have ended relationships with people who prove themselves toxic and unsafe. Doesn't have to be ugly. Doesn't have to be unkind. And for me, uh, it is definitive. So I sever the relationship and walk away. Now it's worth adding here. In many cases, the other person severs the relationship and I walk away. I think the hard part for people to understand is what I'm feeling because people assume that if you make a decision like that, that those decisions are driven by hatred or vengeance or spite, uh, or something else. And for me, That is not how it works, and that is not how it feels, and it has never worked that way. My memories are all consistently driven by forgiveness, and it doesn't matter if it's asked for or not. It doesn't matter if the other person 
wants it or not. It doesn't matter if the other person feels like they even did anything to be forgiven of. And I just want to make sure, okay, have I done my part? And once I'm convinced I've gone the second mile, I've made the effort. I've tried to rectify whatever wrong I may have committed or whatever wrong the person may have felt I committed. And I do that for me. And yeah, I also do it for them. But once I'm to that point, it's over. It's over. And for me, it feels more like closing a chapter that is now over. It's been read. It's been written. It's been read. It's done. It's finished. And so I just move on, move forward. Now, other people I know for a fact judge it differently than that. And nobody's got to believe me when I tell them that this is for me, how it feels. This is for me, how it, how it's experienced, but that's just the reality of it. You know, some people who know me best have expressed curiosity about all that. And I would love to tell you that this is all fully conscious and that there's, you know, there's this grand strategy in play. It it doesn't work that way. It, it for me is an innate thing. Some years ago, I was introduced to the VIA survey, VIA survey of character traits. We all have these. These are character traits. We have these to varying degrees. Some of these, we use them a lot. Others, we don't hardly use them at all. Character traits are not like strengths. They are not, uh, they're not personality. They're much more stable than that. And they are harder to change perhaps because, well, they really more are who we are. And what we can do is we can know them better. We can absolutely leverage them better. We can leverage them to our best and we can absolutely shore up places where we might be weak, but largely they are likely so ingrained into who we are that we really don't we really don't know how, we don't know why we're incorporating them all the time. We don't think about them. For me, forgiveness is my number one character trait. That means it is the trait I use the most. It is the one I most easily incorporate into my life. I don't even think about it. I don't wrestle with it. I have, I have learned over time that a lot of people wrestle with it. I don't, I never analyze it. Uh, I don't sit there and weigh why I should or shouldn't. I just decide, I just do it and I move on and close the chapter. Now, one of the fascinating things about the whole via survey of character traits is the strengths. If you want to use that word and I just have the strength can become your weakness. So this innate feeling or ability that I have to very quickly do that with other people. I cannot do that with myself. It it's, it's beyond an act of Congress for me to forgive myself. And I have found over the years that that seems to be true. If you, if somebody takes the via survey and whatever their top character strengths are, however good those things seem to be, there's an element of those that's going to come back and bite you. 
And for me, the forgiveness is number one. It has been, it's number one every time I take it. And it's easy, except with one human. And that one human is me. So there's that. Memories. Memories of being a certain way. Memories of communicating a certain way. Memories of, of countless conversations in conversation circles with girls and boys at school, with friends along the way. Memories of being a certain way. Like you, they have fueled most of this coasting. And they always have. And they likely always will. And there's no one moment that I can point to, but there's just a bunch of ordinary moments, right? There's just this accumulation of a whole lot of instances where being who you are and the way you are has defined who you are. Now, tap the brakes. I'm not at all saying that, well, it's just all fixed. There's nothing that we can do to grow or improve or learn. Because a third and a final thought came to my mind as I was thinking about the guy who was fueled by the memory of the girl falling asleep on his shoulder. And that thought was getting it right, making it great. And I thought of my memories and I thought of the memories that I may have helped others create. Do you ever wonder about your childhood friends? You ever wonder about the friends you had back in high school? You ever think about how frozen in time you all are to each other and how you saw kids back in the day when you were all 16 or 17, maybe younger, maybe older. Some memories are innocent, but you know, I wonder about others. I wonder about the people who may have drawn some conclusions about me based on the 16 year old version of me. I don't feel much different today. I, I don't, you probably don't either. But I'm old enough now and I'm wise enough now to know that I made some foolish choices along the way. I, I'm sure I behaved poorly at times. And it goes way beyond teenage years. I look back now at myself in my 40s and I wonder what negative memories I may have sparked because I was just stupid. I was foolish. I didn't know better. We can all coast on bad or negative memories as much as good ones. Now I can tell you one thing that kind of sparked this was going through and this purging that I'm going through and, and looking at various documents and letters and notes and things. And yeah, it's not all positive. You know, in my experience, it can be almost impossible to outlive some negative view that others may have of us. I'm not sure what it is in the human memory that enjoys pegging a person at some moment in time as forever kind of being that whatever that is, but it seems fairly widespread to me that we can get fixated on a moment in time. A person says something, they do something, bam. That's it. I mean, it's drop the gavel, drop the hammer, judge, jury, executioner. It's all in play. I've got a friend who has suffered some major setbacks in life. Yeah. Some due to his own foolishness. 
others due to horrific circumstances of, of his youth and his adulthood and still others due to some drivers, some motivators that compelled him to make choices in hopes of gaining the respect of people that he sought to please. And like most of us, his story is not linear. It didn't just start at point A and go to point B. It's this long winding road of ups and downs and decisions and actions and pursuits and consequences and good and bad. It is a road filled with dreams and goals and ambitions. And it, it, here's what it's not. It is not the story of a dirty, rotten scoundrel. It is not the story of an immoral ne'er-do-well. His life, like my life and probably yours, is the story of a guy who wanted to get it right, but sometimes didn't. This well-intended guy who proved imperfect. Sound familiar? Yeah, I'm looking in the mirror. And coasting on memories compels me to think of how things in our life aren't equal. There are some choices in our lives that have bigger impact, that they create longer lasting memories for everybody concerned. You know, somebody says, hey, she married the wrong guy. He's just never been good for her. And then maybe somebody else remarks, you know, he has worked like crazy to make her happy, but it is never going to happen. Picking a spouse, picking a spouse is one of those momentous decisions that carve a bigger memory for people. Get it wrong. It's as bad as it can get, get it right. And it's more glorious than anybody can ever imagine. And of course, yes, there are a billion shades between those two extreme memories. There is the reality. It can be wrong, wrong, wrong. It can be right, right, right. It can be somewhere in between. I know people who happily judge my friend for the memories born of moments here and there. I see it in their eyes. I hear it in their voices. The condescending self-righteous. I'm so much better than him demeanor that frankly, we're all capable of displaying toward each other. And I know that no matter how long he lives and no matter how hard he tries, there are going to be some folks that are going to coast into the next life with their memories of harsh judgment toward or against him. And there ain't much he's going to be able to do about it. I know that he knows that, but I also know that there are people on the planet who view me the same way. Why are you laughing? Cause they're, they're looking at you the same way too. None of us are immune. But you know what? I wonder how many memories I've coasted on that I got wrong. Let's not think about the wrong that's been imposed on us. What about the wrong that we're imposing? Capturing some conversation, capturing some decision, some action in a moment of time that may not fairly represent the reality of that person or even that moment. And you do know that if people were judging me at 16 or 17 or at 40, I'm not 16 anymore. I'm not 40 anymore. 
it's fascinating to me. It really is completely intriguing to me that we give no allowance for people's growth or improvement or change. It's just a time maybe where I got it wrong, but over time, maybe I've convinced myself, oh, I was right. I was totally right. Those are the questions that cause me to not coast too much on a memory. Cause I know that things aren't always as they seem or as I remember them. And in this quest to figure it out, working really hard to get it right in real time, which is how I've defined wisdom at this podcast, leaning toward wisdom, getting it right in real time. Sometimes we fail. We just fail. We fail ourselves and we fail others. And sometimes we may never know that we failed because we are convinced that we got it right. Well, we're just trying to get it more right than not. That's the goal here. None of us are perfect. We're not going to get perfect. But we can get more perfect. (laughs) We can try. Try to get closer to it. It's funny the things that I have thrown in trash bags over the last weeks. Number of letters and documents. Some pretty hateful. Memories of friendships that once were, that are no longer. Somebody asked me the other day about one and inquired about the sadness of it. And I said, no, I kind of view it like the Dr. Seuss quote, you know, I'm, I'm glad it happened. It's over. I'm good. I'm good. I I can't fully put language to make people understand, but we do have to move forward and we do have to move on. And there are some people that we need and there are other people that, boy, they are the last thing we need. For me, I've about decided that leaning toward wisdom is largely the activity of being able to figure out the difference in the two and being able to invest your time where you feel you can have the biggest impact in the work and in the personal life. The fascination continues to be the ideal outcome. What's our ideal outcome? What's for you to decide? But the memories that you're coasting on, they are going to play a part. The website is leaningtowardwisdom.com. My name is Randy Cantrell. Greetings and welcome inside the Yellow Studio.